You know, about five years ago, when we uh, adopted a present mission statement in our church, and uh, that's also on the front of your bulletins that you're reminded of every week. At that same time, our leadership also sensed God asking us to take four very specific action steps. And one of them was to recognize the fact that God uh, was pleased to give our church an opportunity to be uh, mentors, both on an individual basis as well as corporately, to other pastors, other churches that he would see fit to bring across our path. This wasn't something we went looking for. This was just something that seemed to be happening. And as we as an elders board tried to discern what God was doing, this was one of the things that emerged very clearly. In fact, even uh, two nights ago on Thursday evening, I had the privilege of spending a couple of hours with a executive pastor and a board member of a church from another, another denomination in Mississauga that came and spent a couple of hours just wanting to find out a lot about our church and his vision and things like that. And so that's something that God has continued to see fit to happen in this church. Now, one very specific continuing way in which we fulfill that mandate is through our participation in the internship program in our college and our seminary. And over the last year, we've had the privilege of having Tony Samet intern with us here. Tony is doing his Master of Divinity Studies uh, in cooperation, a joint venture with Wycliffe College in Toronto, in combination with Canadian Theological Seminary's Eastern Wing that Miriam Charter was directing here. And he has been interning on a part-time basis from last September to this past April, and then May, June, and July of this month he has been interning with us uh, full-time. And so this is his last Sunday, and so it's our privilege to welcome our brother Tony to the pulpit as he continues our study and exposition of the book of Colossians. Well, good morning. Uh, before we get started, I just wanted to start off by uh, just saying a great big thank you. Um, as Pastor Cinder has shared, um, we've been here, uh, my wife and I, Catherine, we've actually been going to this church for the last three years or so, um, but I've been here as an intern part-time from September until April, and now um, now here full-time from May until this weekend. So I just want to thank you so much as a congregation, as a church, for your willingness to, uh, to receive me as an intern, to give me opportunities to serve and learn in ministry, to free up members of your pastoral staff to be able to build in, into my life and, uh, and my ministry abilities and, and, uh, and passions as well. It's just been such a privilege to be a part of this church for this time. I want to thank those of you who I've served with and worked with directly. Um, it's just been such an encouragement to me to meet, uh, to meet some of you and to get to know some of you uh, a bit better. To learn from your passion and your excitement and enthusiasm, your commitment to this church and the people that you're um, involved in and serving with. Um, I want to thank those of you who have specifically been praying for Catherine and I. Uh, that's been an encouragement and, and much needed support along the way. And I also want to thank you as a church for your financial support to us. Uh, that money will be able to be put toward a good chunk of my tuition for this coming year. So I just want to thank you so much for that. Let's pray together before we get started. Lord Jesus, we, we sing these words, you are my all in all. You are the Lamb of God and worthy is your name. Um, and we come to you as a, as a people who so often our hearts don't leap at those words. 
our minds and our energies and our passions are not um, excited and enthused by all that you are and all that you've done for us, O oh God, and your Son, Jesus Christ. Um, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that you have called us into this holy calling of being sons and daughters of the living God to bring about your purposes in this world. What a privilege that is, O oh God. So I pray that now you would open our eyes um, to see your glory. You would open our, hear, our ears to hear your voice. Um, you would strengthen our hands to continue to love and serve you and others. I pray that you would give me um, the grace to speak words of truth with a sincere heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in order to get started on this uh, on this week's passage in Colossians, we're looking at Colossians chapter one, uh, twenty-four to two, verse five. Really, Paul in in this in this section of Colossians, he picks up exactly where he, he left off um, from last week's sermon. So, I wanted to give a quick recap of last week's sermon, and then we can uh, go right into this week's. Uh, you, you may remember from last week, Sunday was talking about the supreme Christ in Colossians chapter one, fifteen to twenty-three, and he outlined this creed that Paul wrote down in, in the book of Colossians, the creed that exalts Jesus Christ and affirms who he is and what he's done. It talked about Jesus as being the firstborn over all creation, that word firstborn referring to Christ's divinity and not his humanity. It talked about Jesus having created all things, being before all things, and in whom all things hold together. And then he went on to talk about the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross, and through that Jesus has reconciled us completely to God. And then Paul finishes that section off with the words, This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And now in this next section, Colossians 1.24-2.5, Paul goes on to explain and expound what he means by calling himself a servant of the gospel. And as I've been studying this passage over the last week and a half and thinking about it, I've really noticed that what Paul outlines here when he explains what he means by calling himself a servant of the gospel is really, in fact, giving us a model for our own ministry. He explains what his ministry is all about, the priorities and the principles and the foundations that make up his ministry and passions. And in fact, in doing that, he gives us this incredible model for our own ministry. It's been particularly relevant to me as I'm preparing for full-time pastoral ministry as well. And, you know, just asking those questions, what are those, what are those key foundational um, principles, what are those key priorities that we need to continue to keep in mind, to be at the forefront of our minds and hearts as we serve in ministry? So let's read the passage together. Colossians 1, 24-25. Now, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, 
struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So one of the things we need to keep in mind as we go through the book uh, to Colossians is that one of the primary reasons Paul was writing this letter to the church at Colossians was because of these false teachers that were beginning to creep their way into the church. Um, Sunders talked about them the last two weeks uh, in this series so far, and he mentioned last week that these false teachers were probably from an early form of Gnosticism of some sort. Uh, the, the word gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. So this was a philosophy that uh, was based on the idea of this sort of hidden or mysterious knowledge that needed to be acquired, this secret wisdom that needed to be required for ultimate enlightenment and eternal life and these kinds of things. So really the first section of this, of, of this particular section, Colossians 1.24 to 2.5, Paul is ad- addressing some of these these key and foundational differences uh, between the truth of the gospel that he's preaching and teaching the Colossian church compared to some of the false truths that, uh, or the false teachings that these teachers are trying to infiltrate into the Colossian church. So I just thought we could look at some of them and see how Paul addresses these issues. One of the first things that these false teachers taught was that Christ alone was not sufficient for eternal life. They didn't consider him to be divine in nature. They piled up these rituals and worship practices and secret pieces of information that needed to be known if eternal life were to be somehow achieved or acquired. But Paul, on the other hand, was convinced that Christ was totally sufficient. He was sufficient for complete salvation. He was sufficient for our growth and maturity in, in, uh, in spiritual maturity, in wisdom, in effectiveness for our ministry. And this is why Paul says in, in 125-27 that I have become the gospel servant by the commission God gave to me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word of God in its fullness is summed up and revealed in Jesus Christ, in him and us, and he is our hope for, for salvation, him alone. And, and Paul went on to say in chapter 128, we proclaim him, we proclaim Christ, not these added rituals or worship practices or behaviors that needed to be done or secret teachings, but we proclaim Christ teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Another thing that the false teachers taught was this kind of intellectual exclusiveness. They taught that not everyone could really know these deep and hidden mysteries that would unlock the keys to ultimate enlightenment and eternal life, but it was really only for those who were already sort of somehow inherently spiritual enlightened that had this divine spark already implanted within them. But Paul, on the other hand, um, taught that Christ was for everyone. He was for everyone that might believe. And this is why he said, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Christ wasn't for a select a select few, but he was open to everyone who might believe in him. The false teachers, the third thing that they taught 
They taught about and they focused on these, these secret mysteries that were hidden from most people. But Paul, on the other hand, taught that the mystery of God had been revealed completely in Christ. And this is why he says the mystery of God in chapter 126 to 27. The mystery of God that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery of God had been completely revealed in Christ. There's no, there's no hiding anything. The mystery was this, that in Christ was salvation, not just for Jews alone, but for Jews and Gentiles alike. The last thing that some of these false teachers were focused on is really they, their focus was on pursuing wisdom and the performance of these religious practices as really chief ends in themselves to pursue to acquire eternal life and spiritual wisdom. But Paul's focus wasn't on, on religious perfectionism, but his focus was on a relationship with Christ, which is why he said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That was his goal, to be able to present everyone perfect in Christ. It wasn't on, on religious perfectionism that Paul focused on, but it was Christ in you and you in Christ, intimacy with Christ and relationship with Him. Really, when we look at these, these four aspects of Paul's focus and his teaching, it's just so obvious and it appears that Paul is just utterly convinced of the total sufficiency of Christ to save completely everyone who might believe in Him and, and enter into a personal relationship. And he was, and, and this is really our first, our first point for Paul's model for ministry. He's just utterly convinced of the sufficiency of Christ. And because he was so convinced of this, he was able to be sold out for this one purpose, which he says in chapter 128 and 29, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. If there's one place in the New Testament where Paul, where Paul probably sums up his whole life purpose and mission statement in a single sentence, this is it. This is what he lived for. It's what he was sold out for. Because he knew that complete salvation was found in no one else. It was found in no thing else but Christ alone. So he was consumed by doing everything he could to bring as many people as he could to maturity in Christ. And Paul wasn't the kind of person that would be satisfied with going out and sharing the four spiritual laws with someone, getting a sinner's prayer, and then moving on to the next person, or to the next group of people to evangelize. And I'm not trying to, to sound harsh on that or to say that that's a bad thing in itself, but what I am saying is that Paul wanted more than that. His purpose was to present everyone perfect in Christ. He wanted to see the life of Christ permeating into every aspect of every believer's life and character. There wasn't a corner or a spot in any believer's life that Paul didn't think could be touched and transformed by the new life of Christ in us. And that's why he worked on both sides of salvation. He proclaimed Christ to those who, who didn't yet know him. And to those he did, he taught and admonished about Christ. These two words, teach and admonish. Teaching relates to the positive aspects of teaching. Who Christ is, what Christ has done, what the Christian life looks like and involves. Admonishing being these, these warnings about the false teaching false teachings of Christ, who Christ is not, what he hasn't done, what the Christian life doesn't look like. And his purpose was the same for everyone, to present everyone perfect in Christ. So as I've thought about this, you know, how this might apply to our own lives, I think one of the most obvious applications is, well, if this is Paul's primary purpose um, in ministry, and I think it's quite apparent in a number of ways that this is also God's primary purpose 
or ministry, then is this my chief aim in our ministry? For those of us who are in ministry, what's our ultimate purpose? What are we trying to accomplish um, with, with the work that we put into this? Um, over the course of the last year, um, one of the main things that I've been doing is leading the young adult ministry here called Next. Um, and we have a mission statement, which has been new this year. Um, and it's this, to reach and transform young adults into fully contributing members of Rexdale Alliance Church. And I've spat this statement out so many times. I've talked about it at our exec meetings once a month. I've talked about it at a number of different young adult events. I've tried to teach it to the young adults at our last retreat. And, you know, I've had to wrestle with this myself because I, could, I wouldn't be able to um, affirm this purpose statement unless I could be clear with myself and true to myself that I believe that it's good. Because, you know, if this, if this is all it was, if this was our whole chief aim and our whole, our whole purpose in leading the young adult ministry, then really it could, it could easily, very easily degrade to sort of just jumping through a number of hoops and boxes. You know, some of our priorities or, or, or desires in, in a purpose statement like this is to have young adults join, Bible, join a small group Bible study, have young adults get involved in ministry, have young adults to become uh, members of this church. But are they all just boxes to check off our list? Or are they part of something more? We need to put a purpose statement like this in the context of something like Paul's purpose statement to present everyone perfect in Christ. So, I mean, the reason that we want to trans- reach and transform young adults into fully contributing members of Rexdale Alliance Church is because the mission statement of Rexdale Alliance Church is to make disciples of many people who will follow Jesus Christ in authentic worship. That is, that's exactly what Paul's saying. So the idea in all of this isn't to encourage young adults to join the program or to fit the mold of what Next is trying to do, but it's to encourage young adults to continue to be more devoted to Jesus Christ, to continue to, to strive toward maturity in Christ and intimacy with Him. That's the ultimate end that this purpose statement is designed to get at. Another example of this is, is the capital campaign. We're just coming off a seven-week series where week after week, Sinner has been just driving home the point, just using different words in one way or another to say that the whole point of this capital campaign is not the building. That's not the chief end in itself. It's not about the Vaughn Church building. It's not about the AUC campus. But he's been calling us into a a, a spiritual process that we might encounter God, that we might wrestle with him to see how we can get involved in this whole process, that we might have the faith to, to, to step out and see what God might do in our efforts all these different ways and opportunities to grow in maturity in Christ, that we might be weaned off the love of money and more toward the love of Christ. A third application that I thought about this relates to our our own personal lives um, on a more individual level. Because, I mean, if this is Paul's chief aim in ministering to others, if if it's our chief aim in ministering to others, to, to present others perfect in Christ, is it our chief aim for our own lives? Do we want to be presented perfect in Christ? Are we, are we, Paul said, I labor and struggle for this end. Are we laboring and struggling um, for this end in our own lives? If we look back over the last year, is there a noticeable difference in our lives now compared to a year ago or five years ago? If we were to write a list about the ways that we've changed or matured in Christ over the last year or two, what would be on it? How long would it be? How significant would those changes be? If we were to write a list of over the next five years, the ways that we want, that we hope to change, that we want to change, what would we put on that list? And do we think as intentionally about growing in our own spiritual life as we do about growth in our ministries or in our workplaces? 
this is my, my beautiful wife, Catherine. I, I thought I'd put her up there because I wanted to see her larger than life. Um, we're two weeks shy of bar- being married for a year. And uh, one of the things that we've been doing in Next over the, over the past year is developing this vision document where we articulate our mission, our mission statement, we articulate the focuses and priorities of the young adult ministry, some goals that we want to accomplish over the course of the last year. And we finished it recently, and I was showing it to Catherine, and she said, hey, you know what? We should really do something like this for our marriage. Have we thought this intentionally about our marriage? You know, as we're preparing um, ourselves and thinking about the calling that God has placed on our lives, how are we intentionally making goals? to grow towards spiritual maturity together as a couple, to build one another up in our spiritual gifts together as a couple? How are we preparing ourselves to become godly parents so that we might raise godly children? Are we thinking about these things as intentionally as we should or as we could? Paul's purpose was to present everyone perfect in Christ. So that's really the second point in Paul's model for ministry. He was convinced of the sufficiency of Christ and because of that he was able to be consumed by the sole purpose to present everyone perfect in Christ. And it's a big goal. It's a huge goal. And Paul knew that, which is why he fully expects that he wouldn't be the one to accomplish it on his own strength. And that's why he says in 129, To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. And to get the full brunt of this statement, we need to take a closer look at these two words, struggling and labor. The word struggling is the Greek word... uh, agonizomai. It's where we get our word agonize from. This word might be used to describe a physical conflict in which weapons were used or an athletic competition, like an Olympic athletic competition. You can imagine the intensity of that. Or some sort of intense labor. So this word relates to the intensity of Paul's labor. This other word labor is the Greek word kopio, uh, which means to endure a beating or weariness or physical tiredness that's brought on by a long day of work or exertion, or being out in the heat or something. So this really relates to the longevity of Paul's labor. So he's working intensely, he's working unceasingly. And when I think about this, I can, I, I don't know about you, but I relate to this in the fact that I can usually do one of these two things well, but not both at the same time. Either, I either can work intensely, but not for a long time, or I can work for a long time, but then it won't be nearly as intense. I know I'm much, much better in the mornings. Um, comes around 3 to 5 o'clock. Not a very intense uh, couple hours for me. Much more difficult to concentrate. Uh, You may be able to relate. So to do both of these things at the same time, for me anyways, it's next to impossible. But for Paul, he says he's able to do it. So where does this kind of power and energy come from? Well, he tells us it comes from him with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. So wherever Paul labors for the cause of Christ, he doesn't labor on his own strength, but he labors in dependence on Christ. And there, there he's met with the power of Christ. So he labors. He labors intensely intensely and unceasingly. And with each hour and with each day he toils on, he's met with the power of Christ. And this is why Paul can say things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's why he can say things like, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And power is not all, but wisdom as well, because he says we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Well, where does this wisdom come from? He tells us that too in chapter 2, verse 3. It comes from Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Uh, one of the things I've been doing, uh, I've had the privilege of doing over the course of the past year, is um, is taking part in the weekly Tuesday afternoon staff meetings here. And, and as I said before, I've been going to this church for the last three years, so I've known about this church. And I remember preparing for, for the start of September and knowing that I'd be able to take part in these staff meetings and thinking, this is the coveted Rexdale Alliance Church staff meetings. What must go on here? And I remember telling people, they, they said, oh, are you, are you doing staff meetings too? And I said, yeah. They're like, wow, that's pretty neat. I had these images of this table surrounded by these spiritual giants filled with incredible spiritual wisdom and knowledge with the glory of God hovering over them. I wondered... <laughs> I wondered what kinds of things they talked about, but you know, after a few weeks, it really struck me. You know what? These people are pretty ordinary. As ordinary as most. Um, and a lot of the things that they talk about are pretty ordinary things too. You know, but it's incredible because that's, it, it, it's not to play them down at all, but in fact, it's a testimony to God's incredible power and strength and might that's working in and through them and that's working in and through this church. It's incredible to see the vastness of so many kinds of ministries, so much passion that's, that's, uh, that are in the walls of this church and that have, have gone out to spread into the community and around the world. We have ministries for every generation um, and age. We have ministries for in, incredible numbers of cultures, and we have a, a, an incredible passion for missions to see the gospel spread across the world. It's no wonder to me why prayer is such a huge focus in this church and how those two line up together. Because we're not depending on our own strength. It's not about our own strength, the strength that comes from um, our own personal wisdom or power. But it's a, it's a dependence on Christ's strength. And again, I mean, the key continues to come back to this because <clears throat> if we're to grow, um, if we're to grow in wisdom or power or some other spiritual attribute to become spiritually mature in life. It's Christ that needs to be our chief thing. Because the power of Christ doesn't come from the pursuit of power, but it comes from the pursuit of Christ. And this is why someone like A.B. Simpson, who was the founder of our denomination, who was huge on this topic, he wrote this in, a, in an article titled himself. He said, I prayed a long time to get sanctified. And sometimes I thought I had it. On one occasion, I felt something, and I held on with a desperate grip for fear that I should lose it. And I kept awake the whole night, fearing it would go. And of course, it went with the next sensation and the next mood. Of course, I lost it, because I did not hold on to him. I had been taking a little water from the reservoir when I might have all the time received from him fullness through open channels. I went to meetings, and I heard people speak of joy. I even thought I had the joy, but I didn't keep it, because I had not himself as my joy. At last he said to me, oh so tenderly, my child, just take me, and let me be in you the constant supply of all this myself. And when at last I got my eyes off my sanctification, and my experience of it, and just placed them on the Christ in me, I found instead of an experience, the Christ, larger than the moment's need, the Christ that had all that I should ever need, who was given to me at once and forever. And when I thus saw him, it was such rest. It was all right and right forever. For I had not only what I could hold that little hour, but also in him 
all that I should need the next and the next and so on, until sometimes I get a glimpse of what it will be a million years afterwards when we shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of our Father and have all the fullness of God. This is why A.B. Simpson could pen the words of that great hymn himself, which we don't sing very often anymore. But two verses of that song are, Once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it is His word. Once His gifts I wanted, now the giver owns. Once I sought for healing, now Himself alone. Once it was my working, His it hence shall be. Once I tried to use Him, now He uses me. Once the power I wanted, now the mighty one. Once for self I labored, now for Him alone. So here's Paul's third point in his model for ministry. He's convinced of the sufficiency of Christ. He's consumed by a purpose to present everyone perfect in Christ. And he's fueled not by his own strength, but by the, by the power of Christ. But even Paul himself said, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. He knew, he knew that even with all of these things, without a genuine love for the people that he was serving and the God that he was serving, it would all be rendered spiritually meaningless. So he makes his message personal to the Colossians. He tells them, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Well, I mean, what would Paul's motive be, be for saying something like this? Because he could have said something like this to make them feel guilty or to make them feel like they owed him something. I just want you to know how much I'm struggling and how hard I'm working for you. You know, like, oh, come on, give me a break. But no, that's, that's not what he's saying. Um, he's saying it rather instead to encourage them and to unite them. He tells them that. He says, my purpose in struggling for you and even telling you this is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. And why does he want them to be encouraged in heart and united in love? Well, he tells them that too. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul genuinely was concerned for their spiritual well-being. He wanted them to have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they might know Christ. He wanted them to know the sufficiency of the, and supremacy of Christ. And he goes on to tell them, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So while first he tells them in the positive way, I want you to know and fully understand the full riches of who God is and, and who Christ is and how he relates to your life. On the other hand, he said, I also want you to be protected from these false teachers who are lying to you and who, 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 who sound good with these lofty arguments that they have, but they're just speaking hot air. And then he finishes this section. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith is. So Paul tells them, I rejoice. I delight to see how, how you're doing in your faith, to see how firm you are in Christ. And he tells them, even though we're apart, I feel just that connected to you. I might as well be there, present with you, because I feel just that connected to you in Christ. You can see his pastoral concern and genuine care that's coming through in these last few verses in this section. So here's Paul's model for ministry that we have, these four major points in this section. Paul is convinced of the sufficiency of Christ. He's consumed by a purpose to present everyone perfect in Christ. He's fueled by the power of Christ. And he has a genuine and sincere love for the people of Christ. 
And in my eyes, anyways, it's only someone like this who has these kinds of priorities that may have the guts to, to write something like Paul wrote in this very first person, in this very first verse in this section, chapter 124, where Paul says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I mean, this is a huge statement that Paul writes here, and, and it's it sounds heretical in a first reading. Who is Paul to say that he fills up in his flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction? Is he saying that the work of the cross isn't sufficient, but he needs to do something to complete it? Well, no, if we look a little closer at, at this whole chapter in chapter 1, we know that that's not what Paul is saying, because last week, Sunder talked about what Paul wrote in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He says, For God was so was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Christ." And through Christ to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There's nothing deficient in the work of the cross of Christ. His work was made complete. Um, and Paul knows that. So that's not what he was saying. But what he was talking about was really the only thing of Christ that is actually still lacking in this world for the time being at least. And that's his physical body. His physical presence. Um, but who is Christ's body? We are. The church is. We are the tangible and the physical expression of Christ in this world. So we don't complete his, his finished work on the cross, but instead we offer our bodies. We offer ourselves in Christ's service to continue to spread the gospel, to continue to build the church, to continue to complete the plan of redemption. So it's our bodies, it's Christ's purpose. It's our bodies, it's Christ's power and wisdom. It's our bodies and it's Christ's love that will unify us and enable us to persevere in the truth and to stand up against heresy. It's our physical bodies and it's Christ's spirit to continue to complete the work of the kingdom. So here's Paul's model for ministry. He's convinced of the sufficiency of Christ. He's consumed by a purpose to present everyone perfect in Christ. He's fueled by the power of Christ. And he loves the people of Christ. And this altogether is what accurately and powerfully and tangibly represents the physical presence of Christ in this world. He's done the work. It's complete. And he continues to give the power and the wisdom to do the work. And we become Christ's mouth. And we proclaim the word of truth. And we offer encouragement to the saints. And we teach and admonish about Christ. And we become Christ's hands. And we work and we labor and we struggle and strive for the gospel and for the sake of the church. And we become Christ's feet to continue to take the gospel to those who have never heard. And this is the same gospel that's continuing to bear fruit all over the world. It's the same gospel for which Paul has become a servant. And it's the same gospel that we are called to serve. Amen. You may be seated. We want to take this opportunity to pray for... Um, Tony and Catherine as they leave us. But before I do that and before he comes and gives you a benediction, let me just remind you of a couple of quick announcements that relate to events in the next week. Uh, next Saturday evening is the uh, um, barbecue for the uh, PALS group, and it's in the home of Linda Kanishni. The, the details are in your bulletin. And also two weeks from this weekend, we'll be having our baptism services, and many of you who in the past have considered taking that step but have not been able to follow through for various reasons. There's baptism classes next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. 
please let Pastor Wayne know either through email or give him a call. Again, the contact information is there in the bulletin for you. Tony, come on up and let's pray together. Is Catherine here? You've seen her picture, you've got to see the real person too. Eh? <laughs> you join me as we pray for them. Our Father, we are grateful to you that you do entrust to us young men and women that we can uh, invest in and envision in, Father. Thank you that you were already at work in their lives before they ever got here and that you will continue to be at work in their lives after they've gone from our midst. That we have simply been privileged to be part of the process, that particular part of the body that uh, they needed over these last three years and especially as Tony was with us in an enlarged and specific capacity over the last three months. We thank you for the life that they have contributed in this church through the gifts and the talents and the passions that you've given to them. And we thank you, Father, for the things that we have been able to build into them. And I want to just pray very specifically, Father, for them, that they will not forget this very message that they have been used to deliver to us, Father. That this glorious model for ministry that has been presented to us by Tony will in fact be that which will grip and shape their hearts. I know it will take a lifetime. It takes 35 minutes to preach a message like this and it takes 35 years to build it into our lives. And so I pray that those very two things that they talked about this morning, that you will give them that ability to both labor and struggle with the power of Christ, that you will enable them to persevere in the long haul and not faint because they have received this ministry from you, and that you will also enable them to work intensely at this in their own lives, in their marriages, and then, Father, through their life message in the congregations in which you will lead them in. I pray very specifically for this coming year of internship in Milton Alliance Church, that uh, their experience there from a very different part of the body uh, will prove to be just as enriching. The things that they could not get from us because they might have been lacking in us, I pray they will find in this new body. And I pray that you will take them there with our blessings so that whatever we have built into their lives will be used to bless that particular body of believers as well. We sanctify them and set them apart for this glorious ministry that you have called them to. May they know Jesus in all of his sufficiency, Father. May they know him in this, as a source of power and strength and wisdom. And in Jesus' name, we commit them to you with gladness. Amen. I mean, in thinking what to uh, say for this blessing, I just thought about these four main points um, in the sermon. Which one sort of grips my heart the most? And I think far and away, there's no question that it's that first one, to be convinced of the sufficiency of Christ. And that's what John Piper calls faith. He calls it being satisfied with everything that God is for us in Jesus. And it's that kind of faith that spurs us on to be consumed with this sole purpose, to present everyone perfect in Christ. It's that kind of faith that believes that Christ has that kind of power to give, that kind of wisdom to give and to offer us. It's that kind of faith that fuels the love for the saints, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and for, that, and for our God. So I bless you with that kind of faith to be satisfied with everything that God is for us in Jesus. Go in Jesus' name.